All right, let's take our Bibles, and we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11. We do have a lot to kind of read this, this evening, but you know, the point of this study is, is just to look at the decisions of men in leadership and try and learn from them. I think our politicians would do well if they did that today, but I think you can tell, thank you, Hope, God bless you and your family, <laughs> but um, I really do think uh, you know, today's politics is more of a popularity contest. Obviously, there's a lot of um, involvement for money, and we know the love of money is the root of all evil. I was talking to a guy a couple of months ago, and I said that to him in the discussion. He said, no, no, wait a second. Money's good. You know, Money's a sign of blessing and all this. And I said, well, I'm not saying that money's bad. Money's not the issue. It's the love of money where the problems come in. You see that, that today, the politicians that usually rise to the top are the ones who have the most sponsors and lobbyists and things backing them up. They get nominations and all that. That's why when President Trump ran, he kind of stirred everything up. He didn't have all of that before. But still, the politics that we have today, they lead to a lot left to be desired in the form of actual biblical leadership. But we know that this is how this country is going to go. As soon as we took the Bible outside of our regular encouraging study for our, for our kids, it's just a matter of a few generations, and we see where we are today. Kind of always want to remind you to pray for the Youth Ranch Ministry and the Iwana Ministry. That, those two ministries are probably one of the, uh, some of the most important work that we do here at the church, because they're next. Those little ones running around back there, they're going to be in our position one day, and they need to know the Word. They need to be able to rightly divide the word. I think I've, I've been with Trent and um, sat in on the ranch uh, ministry that he has. It's a great ministry. These kids need it. They need it a lot. And it's, it's tough. They only get three hours a week because they go back into a school system that does not care about them or their behavior. Sadly, many of them go into broken homes. And so they only have three hours a week to learn the word. It's a slow drip of, of information, but... Is it worth it? Absolutely. You have no idea how the Holy Spirit's going to convict those kids as they get older. But what we're going to study tonight is how the nation of Israel became divided after Solomon's leadership ended. We're going to take a look at some of the decisions that Solomon made. We're going to take a look at some of the decisions his son Rehoboam made, how God brought these things about as a result of Solomon's disobedience. We'll look at that disobedience of Solomon. And then we'll see what does the Bible say about how our character should be in situations like this. We know that Solomon was a very wise man. 1 Kings chapter 3 tells us the prayer and request that he asked the Lord. It's a prayer that I often repeat to the Lord. I want wisdom to be able to discern. I want to have good judgment. Solomon had wisdom. He had good judgment. He used it incorrectly. And this is a great thing to remember. God can give you blessings, but there is a temptation and a risk that we misuse what God has given to us. You see it all the time, you know, the sports illustration. A team is terrible for many years, and they finally get a first-round pick, and they take a player, but they didn't pick the right player. And it sets the franchise back many, many years, many seasons. They can constantly be trying to get out of that hole of not making the right decisions. They had the right opportunity to do it, but they didn't make the right choice in that opportunity. 
Well, Solomon no doubt had blessings, and Israel was blessed as a result of it, but he had a very, very difficult problem with love, specifically with love of foreign women. Now, my whole thing is not, you know, beware of foreign women. That's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is God told him about this well before we see the recorded um, fall in 1 Kings 11. But the reason why Solomon was warned of this is because of the influence that came from these women and their culture. You're going to see that now. Let's take a look. 1 Kings chapter 11. This is on page 402 if you're in a church loan Bible or a Schofield Bible. We'll read along here. But Solomon loved many strange women. So you should mark that because that is the reason why all of these other things happened. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel. So it's not just to Solomon that God gave these warnings. He said to the entire nation, he said this, you shall not go into them. This is to mean you shall not marry with them and produce children with them because there is going to be a great temptation for your household to include their form of worship. The Bible talks about this for believers. We should not be unequally yoked. I'm counseling, I, I'm, I'm doing some uh, premarital counseling with some individuals, and they're sharp. They're young, but they're sharp. They know what each other believes about the gospel. And, I'm, and you may have experienced this in your own marriage or in the marriage of a friend that, you've, um, that you know. When you have two people that don't make their beliefs the primary issues, they will become a problem down the road. At some point or another, those affiliations will leak out. It's not just you want to vote the same, although I think that's important. It's not just that you want to enjoy the same type of parenting style, although that is important. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because at the end of the day, your entrance to heaven is not based on your parenting style. It's not based on whether you voted Democrat or Republican or Independent. It's what do you say about Jesus? And there are some burdens. I've seen this in my life. I've seen some men carry some heavy burdens because their spouse is not saved. That's a heavy burden. It's hard. And of course, we can't go back and change the decisions that we made, but we have to do a certain set of things there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 talks about that. That's not the point of our study tonight. But you can see why the Lord said what he said. Did those cultures influence Israel? Absolutely. That's Israel's number one problem is idolatry. And it's not just they had a problem with, you know, actual little idols. The idea that there were other gods that could be honored with the same honor that is only to be given to Jehovah, that was their problem. When the prophets would come and bear the news from the Lord that we're going to get punished, Israel, we are, we're cruising for a bruising. What would the corrupt nation of Israel do in that time? They would slay the prophet. They'd put him in a pit. They'd tear him limb from limb. They did that to Jesus Christ as well. Why? Because they told the truth about what God had already said to do and what not to do. So there's a, the, the authors here in 1 Kings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're reminding what the expectation was. Look at the rest of verse 2. Neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. So there was no doubt that he cared for him. 
But I think the form here is that physical love, the sexual bond there, Solomon had a problem. He could not withhold himself. And it was not just that he was sexually involved with these women. Now his mind became unclean. Look at the, resp- look, look at the results. This is crazy. It's comical today, right? Because we think that... I can't imagine like a new visitor coming to church and is like, how's your wife? Oh, which one? I have 700. I, I don't think that's going to happen. And if it does, that would be one of those things where you just go into your office and like check that box of things you thought would never happen. But this was true of Solomon in his power. Now you can understand his position. Okay, he's king. His influence, look what he says, or look what the scripture says of him. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. I want you to focus here on the princess part. He was marrying into other royalty. You can't just expect that princess of another royalty to just abandon everything that she was raised in. It wasn't an automatic, I'm now going to switch over to Jehovah. And obviously, these women carried that into the marriage. And it wasn't just the marriage. I mean, 700 of them, I don't know what that was like. Maybe he should have went into the business for anniversary cards. (laughs) But he says here, and his wives turned away his heart. Look what it says at the end of verse 2. Solomon clave unto these in love. Verse 1, love many strange women. So we're backing up to to the root. He made the decision. The decision brought consequences of bondage. And as a result of that, it turned to an actual action. you've heard this before, we don't just fall out of nowhere, right? I mean, we can fall suddenly, you can physically fall suddenly, but there's usually like a stumble, you grab for something, no one just is walking and then they're, they're flat on their face like, oh, how did this happen? You trip over something, you're not paying attention, and you stumble for a bit and you, you have a serious fall, you can get seriously injured. This was Solomon's stumble, the little pebble in his shoe, the little bump in the road, the little raised root that got his foot were these strange women, and the love that he had for them. It led to, look at the end of verse 2, him cleaving to them in his mind and in his action, but then further, it turned his mind completely. And look at the result. For it came to pass, verse 4, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. So not only was his mind changed from Jehovah in his old age to these foreign false gods, his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. It was not right. That's what that word perfect means here. It was not correct, mature, as was the heart of David his father. Now that's interesting because David his father also had sin. And David had severe consequences for that sin with Bathsheba. Not only did the child that he had with Bathsheba pass, and there's some great truths there about where that child is, uh, but also David's lineage outside of Solomon, it was bad rebellious. Absalom, I mean, he, he, he was led a rebellion in the kingdom. What, a, what an embarrassment to David. There were results there, but David got right with the Lord. It's not really said what happened to Solomon after this. There's a, there's a very good observation that everything that's written about Solomon from this point forward is in a negative light. That's not to say he wasn't saved or anything like that. I think it's a lesson for us that even the world's wisest man succumb to sin. So guess what, folks? Same for you and me. You can have all the raw natural talent and ability, but if you're not protecting yourself from sin, it's going to get you. 
It, it, it will. There's a nature inside you that is opposed to anything progress, that, that is, uh, uh, moves you forward in progress in your spirit. We all know what this is like. We battle all the time whether we should do right or do wrong. The only day that you're going to experience victory in that is the day that you die. Amen? <laughs> but we have to be careful that we don't squander our opportunity here and negatively influence somebody else. Because it wasn't just Solomon that was affected here. All of his wives and eventually the kingdom. Look at verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians. He was married to Zidonians. We know from verse 1. Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Also, women that he was familiar with. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh the abomination of Moab, that's another group that was mentioned in verse 1 that he was familiar with, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and that's significant. Right before God's beloved city, its king at the time set up a very perverse sexual temple, so to speak. It wasn't as, uh, it's not like a, a temple that you would see that was built for the Lord. But it was, a, it was a ground for sure. It was, a, it, it, was, it was a place that was set apart specifically for this kind of behavior. You think, how? He didn't obey. He allowed this power that he had to control his actions. And for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon, and likewise did he for all his strange wives. Now this is, there are something, the only group that's not mentioned here are the Hittites specifically, but now they get covered here. Because it says that he did these things, all uh, for his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. The wisest man in the world succumbed to doing the exact opposite of what he was instructed to do. You heard it before, knowledge is power, right? That's what the world tells you, but the Bible also says, knowledge puffeth up. And sometimes... It's important to recognize you might know a lot, but how you put that knowledge into action is, is where you're going to see the growth, or you're going to see the stunted growth. This is why the Bible says, as concerning a deacon or an elder, you shouldn't put someone in a position who's a novice, because they have not gained experience. They may have knowledge, but they're still learning how to do. We're supposed to be doers of the word, not just hearers, but there's a lot that comes with experience. I mean, there's jobs that you could go out there today. You can, there's job positionings that are open, but they're only open to those who have experience. You're not going to put somebody in there who is entry level. It's not going to be conducive to success for the company. Solomon had knowledge. He used that knowledge erroneously. When you read Ecclesiastes, this is that, that, that is the hand of Solomon. And it's a, it's a dark book. It's difficult. It does, it, it's not dark and difficult because it's all that we have, but in our own nature, in our own pursuit, all we can do as, as humans is just work and work and work and work, and then one day, we die. There's some things in Ecclesiastes that'll make you go. It's not like a um, Sunday morning devotional material, right? <laughs> it, but it reminds you the, the finite things of life. There's a passage in there that talks about a man can set aside property and wealth. 
he can set aside a, a mass amount of property and wealth, and the day he dies, it goes to the wrong people. Everything that he intended to be done with his inheritance can be done opposite, and that man has no control over it. We now who have the knowledge of Christ, we know that we're going to be in heaven, we have spiritual blessings in heaven, we can take comfort in knowing that everything that we do here, as far as monetary success, financial security, all that stuff, you know, possessions and all that, they pale in comparison to what we have in one person, folks. It's, it's in Christ. We can serve without that limitation. You can know that what you're doing is because everything is already taken care of. But for the man without Christ, even though he might be the smartest, strongest, most successful man, he's going to die one day and have nothing to his name. And even if his inheritance does go where it's supposed to go, his, his children can mess it up. You know, you're seeing that today. You guys have seen what's going on with Andy, Stan, uh, Andy Stanley? It's, it's sad. I have Charles Stanley's uh, book on eternal security. It's fantastic. I wish he gave the gospel more, but the guy, he was great. Sound man of the word. He rightly divided scripture. I don't know how he raised his son, but however he raised his son, whether it was correctly or incorrectly, his son is far from the truth. And I'm telling you, it's stuff where it's like, I've heard clips, people have sent me clips, and I'm like, how do we draw that conclusion? Things like there's no value in the Old Testament except, his, um, except historical value. You know, there's a lot of value in the first three chapters of Genesis. There's a lot of value. We have the promise of Christ given. This is how people end up deconstructing their faith. They start to doubt Genesis, then they doubt the legitimacy of Israel as a whole. Look what's happening today. People can't agree that Israel is, is exactly where it's supposed to be. People have to say, well, they are there because of legislation. No, no, no. The only legislation that we should be looking toward is Genesis chapter 12, <laughs> when it was given to Abraham as a promise from who? God. But that's not what people say is true today. But Andy Stanley is a very good example of somebody who had access to wisdom, knowledge, and information, but chose to do something different. He uses the scripture, but he uses it to his own devices, to his own conclusions. He said things like, there is no significance to the virgin birth. You deny that. You've got a major problem, huge problem. If we deny the virgin birth and say that Jesus is the product of natural human conception, he is born under sin, meaning he's got it. Even though he did not sin as Adam and Eve did, Romans chapter 5 says, you and I born under that sin. That's a problem. Because now you have to say that Jesus had a sinful nature? I don't even want to get close to that. That's what's being taught. He has no problem with people in the position of a pastor who live a homosexual lifestyle. Zero, he's got zero problem with that. He's at conventions where these things are normal. You have to ask questions. How do we get to those conclusions? It's not rightly dividing the word. It's straying away from the truth. Solomon is an example of that. Now, in response to this, we continue on. We see that God raised up adversaries. Look what he says here in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon. You think? These abominations and, and altars that were being raised up to these false demonic gods, 
You go look up Molech, folks, and I'll tell you one thing about Molech. It's all about child sacrifice. That's why I love my country, but I'm not proud of what this country does. That is a huge win for you know, Roe v. Wade as far as it's back to the states, but there are states that are going after Molech. I, and I'm, 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 I'm a father of an adopted child. It breaks my, abortion breaks my heart. I know it breaks yours too. But there are kids that could go to loving families. And I'm telling you, great people. And they're slaughtered before they even have a chance. That's not new. That's a pagan ritualistic practice. In our country, in some states, it flags as, it, it, uh, it waves as a flag of honor. That this is a great thing. This is a great thing for for women, for all, it's just terrible. The Lord was angry with Solomon. You think he's angry with America? Yes. Because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing. So it wasn't like Solomon was like, oh, I didn't know about this. <laughs> he, he told you twice in appearance. Continue verse 10, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. You should see this here. This is an if-then. There's, there, there's conditional promises in the word. If you bless Israel, you'll be blessed. If you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. Very broad, very general, because that's exactly what the promise is supposed to include. I'm going to stand behind the nation of Israel. My prayer for them is, is, that, is that they would repent in that they would go from unbelief to belief. And I know, I know the largest revival for Israel is going to happen at the rapture, folks. There's going to be people that change their mind and they're going to be preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those people, but that doesn't mean Jewish people can't get saved now. And we should pray for that. We should pray for the preservation of that nation. But I also know what's coming for Israel. For this whole world, I know. And that also motivates me to get the gospel out. But the if-then here is, if you obey me and keep my commandments, Solomon, you're going to do well. If you don't, I'm going to take it from you. And that's exactly what happened. Wherefore, the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, you've done it, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee. Don't you like how clear God is? He's not that parent that busts in the room and is just having a bad day, and he's going to take it out on his kids. This is, this is by, by the way, if I can have your eyes for a second, this is how we should discipline our kids. We should make sure that the standard is set. We shouldn't discipline our kids for something they didn't know was wrong. You have first-time obedience is the expectation. This is what I told you to do. When that is broken, there's a conversation. Because you have made this choice, which was against what I had clearly said, Whatever consequences you explained at the setting of the standard, you go through with them. You want to teach kids that you don't have any authority? Keep saying you're going to do something and don't do it. That's not God, folks. Now, we know in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, it says, because judgment against the evil work is slow, the heart of man is continually wicked. That's a great verse, by the way, Ecclesiastes 8.11. But that doesn't mean that the judgment's not coming. Second Peter talks about that. Their day's coming. Second Corinthians talks about that. 
These false prophets, their day is coming. But they run rampant now. But God, he gave a great example here. He says, Thou hast not kept my covenant, verse 11, and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely, double emphasis, rend the kingdom from thee and give it to thy servant. His servant, verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's who's going to take the kingdom from. And this is where the division is going to happen because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he made some bad choices too. But that's the consequence here. Verse 14, you see this guy, Hadad the Edomite. He was a product of some harshness under Solomon's leadership. God raised him up to bring divisions and problems. In verse 23, you see the name there, Razon, who's also somebody God raised up to bring difficulty against Israel after Solomon's sin. This is what happened under Solomon's leadership. A lot of up, a lot of up. We plateau. Solomon made this decision to take down the worship to Jehovah and institute worship to false gods because of his love for the strange wives. And then everything went down really quickly. And then it hit rock bottom where the kingdom was divided. And for centuries, Israel warred with one another. It was like an ongoing civil war. It was not friendly. It was not as God had intended it. But this is what Israel wanted. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. But you know what the problem is with kings? They're all wicked men. Even the ones that did right, they all had a sinful nature. Aren't you glad that the next king of Israel is the sinless son of God? Amen? You should be excited about that because you get to rule and reign with him. I, I can't wait to, to see what that's like. The other day, I, I had a dream that I was close to death. It was so odd. And I was just excited about the fact that I'm finally going to see all these things I've read about. You know, Paul, he saw a lot. He saw a lot and he chose, he said, it's not lawful for me to say. So everything that Paul said, it must have been as important. But man, what's it going to be like up there? You know, driving through the mountains two weeks ago, seeing the leaves change, seeing God's design even in a fallen world, you know, the effects of sin and all that. I keep thinking, if this is beautiful, what is heaven going to be like? You know? All these little uh, Hollywood movies and stuff, they want to show you the utopias like the Jetsons, flying cars, you know. Hey, blah, 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 do this, sure. Oh, that's, that, that's utopia. No, I'm going to do, I'm going to look forward to what God says is perfect. I can't wait. Anyway, getting back to the subject here. Solomon's love for foreign women is not how a believer should practice and demonstrate love. We see the result there, it was, it was thrusted from lust, sexual desire, but then it was also rooted in disobedience because he disobeyed God. So let's take a look at a couple of things here. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Hold your spot in 1 Kings. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to address Solomon's choices here, and then we're going to look at Rehoboam in a moment. 1 John chapter 3, look in verse 18 through 20. My little children, this is on page 1324, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now what he's saying here is, is not that we shouldn't love in the things that we say with our mouths, but that should not be the only way that we demonstrate love. It is actually better to love in action, the actual doing of what God says. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. 
and shall assure our hearts before him. This is building off of what John had already mentioned in verse 28 of uh, chapter 2, where he says, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Those of you who not only love in, the, in, in, in lip service, right? Oh yeah, everything's great, you know. I've, I haven't said a bad word in X amount of years. Well, that's great. What have you done, right? What are your actions? It's better to love, as it says here, in a deed and in truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth, we're abiding with him, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, what a great promise this is, God is greater than our mind. I see this. This is a lot of my ministry with people that lack assurance of salvation. I heard Dr. Gilbert say this a little while ago, and it's something I've heard Dr. Arnold say, I've heard Freddie Coyle say it, Tom Kakuza, all these guys in free grace ministry, they say security, eternal security, it is the gospel message. I mean, you have eternal life. Assurance is something that is gained by the believer. Now, what does that mean? Assurance is something that you can lose assurance of your salvation as you walk away from the truth, but it doesn't change the security. But you become, as James says, the man that we should not be, a double-minded man. You are unstable. I read a great commentary about this. It is like a man who's lost three toes on his left foot. The balance is gone. You know how important that big toe is? It's this big. The rest of your body, however big. You lose that and a couple others, you're done. You're not walking correctly. You're not, you're, you're not balanced. You need help, assistance. That becomes a major problem. That's the believer who has eternal security because they're saved, but they don't have the head knowledge of it because they're not walking in truth. It's good to know that if our mind condemns us, if we're so far from the truth that we forget that we're purged from our old sins, 2 Peter 1 talks about that, God is greater than what this is up here. But you know what we lose? The opportunity to have confidence when we stand before him. We lose that. And look at this other thing, uh, other note that we see in verse 20. God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, if we're walking in the truth, we're loving not in just the things that we say, but the things that we actually do, the way we think, we have confidence toward God. And we get answered prayer. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do these things that are pleasing in his sight. The life of the believer the blessings, the chastening, it's an if-then situation. You stay close to the Lord, you love Him, abide in Him, God is going to work through you. So what's the difference here? The love that Solomon had was a worldly love. The love that believers are supposed to demonstrate is a godly love, agape love, not just phileo, brotherly, or eros, um, erotic love. We have to be careful of that and note that. Look in Romans chapter 12. You can let 1 John go. Hang on to 1 Kings there, but Romans chapter 12. Uh, by the way, those of you who might check our Facebook and say, uh, you know, you, you go to the Facebook live stream, we're having some problems there with the security token. So the Facebook live stream hasn't been up for a little while, but we're working on that. Um, so if you're looking for like a replay of this, just go to our website and go to recent sermons. Trent usually up, updates that on, on Tuesdays. Use Sermon Audio or use YouTube. The YouTube live section's there too. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says this, page 1206. 
Let love be without dissimulation, without hypocrisy, without preference. Abhor that which is evil. That's a very strong and specific word. It means despise it, fully reject it. Reject that which is evil and cleave. This is the idea of being glued, soldered in that which is good. Boy, if Solomon took that advice, it would have been different. But he didn't. And so there were severe consequences. Let's go back to 1 Kings. Now we're in chapter 12. So just as a summary, Solomon passes away. He died in in verse 43 of 1 Kings 11. We see here that now Rehoboam, his son, he's taken leadership. He's going to assume the role of the kingdom. But there's already been a promise made to Jeroboam that he will receive of the divided kingdom. But this is how the kingdom ends up divided. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, they make a comment on Solomon's leadership here, and you should mark what it says, thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve thee. This is the request of the nation. Apparently in Solomon's decline, he was taxing, he was difficult, he was laborious on the people. And the people are saying, make it lighter, we will serve thee. They already want to do that. They, they, They know what it's like to rebel from the Lord. And the plea is, do something different. Look what happens. And he said to them, Depart for three days, come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men, you should mark this here, that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived. These are men, may I have your eyes for a moment, of experience with the current leader, excuse me, with the past leadership. They are people who were actually involved in the the, uh, the past administration. They saw the decisions. They gave the advice. They most likely saw their advice disobeyed, chosen for something else. And now here are the consequences. The people are frustrated. They're overworked. They don't feel valued. They don't feel like this is something they're doing together. So the old men said, that stood before Solomon. And Rehoboam asked, how do ye advise that I may answer this people? He did what he was supposed to do. And that's what I want you to take note of here. He sought counsel. That's good. But what he did with that counsel was poor. And they spake, verse 7, unto him, saying, if thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day. That means now. Don't delay it. Do it now. Boy, our politicians could learn from that. (laughs) And wilt serve them. Notice that. You will serve them. That's exactly the model of leadership that Jesus teaches. The greatest of you is going to be the one who serves. And I love this. I love this so much because Jesus actually demonstrates that when he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter understand, he understood the significance of that. He's like, you wash me? No, no. I will wash you. But Jesus was demonstrating a proper, righteous way. And Peter, when he understood, he said, Lord, not just my feet, but my whole body. 
He understood. But Rehoboam didn't lead this way. But let's look at the rest of the advice. Well, serve them, answer them, speak good words to them. Then will they be thy servants forever. Pause for a second and go to Proverbs 15. Proverbs chapter 15. I love this verse. We're going to look at these verses. We're going to look at. I have fond memories of English class here at Florida Bible College of Tampa. I had to take English class because my college credits didn't transfer over or something like that. I always speak English goodly, so I'm not sure why I had to take it over again. <laughs> but I remember this was, the, this was the verse that we memorized in English. And it's, it, it, I, th- these verses, they have latched onto my mind. And I do my best to try and actually put them into action when I'm giving people a response. But look at this. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Same word that we saw as a description of Solomon's leadership in his last days. The temptation for Rehoboam to lead the same way. The tongue of the wise. Well, I want to have a wise tongue. How? Useth knowledge, period? No, no. It says a right so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a possibility to use knowledge incorrectly. But the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue? Want to have a wholesome tongue? It's a tree of life. Perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. A fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof, correction, is what? Prudent. Another description for wise. So Rehoboam, he's seeking counsel. The old men tell him, trust me, son, from experience, you need to do this. The soft answer. That's not the only advice he gets, though. Let's go back to 1 Kings 12. I don't know about you. I just love going verse by verse to the Old Testament. It's, it's exciting. It's, like, it's just written so much better than a lot of the stuff that's out there today. <laughs> He, they just said at the end of verse 7, 1 Kings 12, 7, Then they will be thy servants forever, but he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the enter stage right, the young men. Oh boy. Oh boy. Not to say that there's nothing good in young men, because there are. David was a young man. Solomon got great blessings from the Lord as a young man. But as a whole, the youth lack what? Experience. Myself included, folks. Trust me, I'm learning every single day. The day that I think I've arrived is the day that I'm allowing Satan to affect what I do. But these young men, they gave him horrid, putrid counsel. The young men that were, ooh, this is even worse. They were grown up with them. These are buddies. What does that mean? Bias. They may have even come and said, hey, yo, Rehoboam, what's up, man? You made it. Now, I don't know if they said that. And that's reading into the scripture. But there's significance that they grew up together. Old college buddies, you know. Maybe they had little discussions about when he's king, we're going to get this place looking right. That's pride, folks. That's pride. His father was not that way. He asked for wisdom. Anyway, 
that were grown up with them, they stood before him and said unto him, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And there's actually a very popular phrase that comes out of this next verse here. You'll see it. The young men that were grown up with him, again, it mentions that. There's significance there. With him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. The, uh, thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. Now, what does this mean? Rehoboam is saying, if you thought my father's leadership was tough, the legs, obviously the legs contain the largest muscle group on the whole body. And that's where men have their strength. You see a guy who's squatting 600 pounds, I've seen that before. That's crazy. And they don't look like, you know, big dudes, but they got tree trunks for legs. What is Rehoboam saying? You think that was bad? My little finger, this thing, is thicker than my father's loins. Hmm, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That will always be bad? Always. He's saying you thought it was bad then? Wait till you see my leadership. Continue on there in verse 11. And now whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father has chastened you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Goodness. Where's the grace there? It's gone, folks. This is a hard man. So Jeroboam comes on the scene, hears this, and there's a division of the kingdom detailed in verse 16 through 33, the rest of the chapter. And so it was for many, many years. Hostility, revenge, bad leadership, didn't have to be that way. A soft answer turneth away wrath. What was Rehoboam's response? I'm going to make it worse for you. Let me, let me show you what the Scripture says for us as far as our behavior. Look in Philippians chapter 2. You can let 1 Kings go. But Philippians in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Once again, we have Christ as our example. He's not just our Savior, folks, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, just our Savior, that's incredible, but he, he is more than that. He is our example for Christian living. He demonstrated it for us. We're coming into the middle of the kenosis of Christ here, the lowering, the self-humbling of Christ. But in verse 7, it says, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, the one who spoke things into existence now serving the creation. And even further, was made in the likeness of men, being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself again and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which is a significant statement here because cursed is anyone that hangs on the tree. He took that on to do something for us, to pay for the sins of the whole world. If you can't forgive somebody, if you can't demonstrate grace over harshness, you've got a heart problem. And I'm not talking about this thing here. I'm talking about something's wrong up here. And you need to refresh that issue and get that issue out by looking at the example of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 9. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's, he knows that. And he still lowered himself for you and me. That's how we should lead. That's how we should live. We don't just put that on when the opportunity is right. That's how we should think. Look in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 7. Page 1255. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service. Boy, there's a lot of that in Christianity today. It's one of the reasons, and I don't, we don't have a, a lot of time left, but it's one of the reasons why when I go to worship, when I, when I have been to other conferences or even other churches, and there's people that are like swaying back and forth, and they're throwing their hands in the air, and it's, to me, and, I, and this might be wrong, it is judging, but I think most of the time when I see that, it's not rooted in truth. It's kind of like, look at me, look at what I'm doing. The worst I ever saw it was at a conference in Colorado. And there was a lady who was beside herself in the corner. I mean, she was wailing, screaming. And it was to the point where a lot of people went to go see if she was okay. And she just started throwing, she threw herself on the ground. There's nothing wrong with her medically. But she just started throwing herself on the ground and like thrashing around. All of a sudden, everything that was going on on the stage, as far as the worship was, is supposed to prepare our hearts for knowledge, for the teaching of the word. Everybody was focused on her and what was going on over there. It distracted from the whole night. And the speaker that got up was a clear gospel speaker. But there are a bunch of people that just sat by that lady for the rest of the night. We can serve the Lord in eye service. We can say, you know, look, look how spiritual I am. Look how, by the things that I do. That's not how we should do it. Look what it says there in verse 5. Singleness of your heart. you got to be right up here. Now, I don't, ha- I don't have problems with people breaking down as they hear truth. I, un- I get that. When I go to the Grace Conference there in Chicago, there's a, there's a reason why I don't do the, the concert at the end where everybody, James, you know what I'm talking about, all, all the different churches, they sing in the choir together. There's a reason why I don't do that. I like to sit in the audience and, and dwell on the truth of Scripture. That, 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 that is a form of worship. I enjoy that intensely. But the last thing I'm doing is standing on the pew, drawing attention to myself. I actually am thinking to myself, I am not worthy. I, I'm just with my Savior there in that moment. But I see a lot of other stuff where it's like the flailing about, the, oh, they've got it, oh, they've got it. And then the people that aren't doing anything, they think, something's wrong with me. That eye service can be very dangerous. Singleness of heart here. Look what it says in verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers. People that are just seeking to receive the validity and the stamp of approval from men, but as servants of Christ. Even in the way you worship, you should be doing it for the Lord. Uh, Doing the will of God from the heart. There's a lot of focus on the heart here. More than the actions. With good will doing service, verse 7, to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, 
So this is what Rehoboam would have found himself in here. As a, he was a master. He was a leader. Do the same things unto them. What does this say? The same way that people who are under leadership should respond, the leader should have the same qualities. I love this. I'm a leader. I'm a pastor. I have people that I meet with and they have expectations. They report to me and all sorts of stuff like that. I better make sure I have my ducks in a row before I go into theirs and cause a problem. This is the classic take care of the (laughs) beam in your eye before you look at the speck in your brother's. Wait, did Jesus use wisdom or did Jesus use wisdom? Man, he, he knew it. But the, people would learn a lot from this. Rehoboam would have learned a lot from this. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. That is exactly the opposite. <laughs> if there's a command to forbear threatening, Rehoboam said, use threatening. And he did. Knowing that your master also in he- is in heaven, neither is there a respect of persons with him. You can't get up there and say, well, you know, that was just the price of leadership. You're going to miss out on rewards. And God is not a respecter of persons. By the way, that's the verse that should you know, render Calvinism useless. Because in Calvinism, it, is, it does say that God is a respecter of persons. In that he's chosen some to eternal life, and he's chosen some to eternal destruction. He holds all to the accountability to believe, and God has taken away the ability of some to believe and then judges them based on their ability not to believe. That's a respecter of persons. That's not the God of the Bible. All right, you can close your Bibles. I wanted to show you that study because, you know, we're getting close to when the politics are going to ramp up if they're not already ramped up, you know. And I just want to remind you, it's funny. It, it's funny. Uh, Trent called me and he was like, is your message today about uh, America? <laughs> I was like... Because you know he he designs the thumbnails. I said no, it's it's about Rehoboam's issues and things like that. But we we've studied some things this week. We looked at Achan, we looked at Lot last week, we looked at Rehoboam. You know, there's a theme here. I really think First Corinthians chapter ten is important. These things happen as examples for us. You, I don't know where God is going to take you in your life, but you may be found in a position of leadership. It'd be wise to know the mistakes of others and the clear instruction. And even if you're not in a position of leadership, in your, in your marriage, in the way you treat people out in the world, we've got to have these things right if we want God to work through us. We don't want God to be working against us. And there's a way that we can avoid that. But you're going to hear a lot of stuff in the coming months about promises and how we can fix this nation. This nation needs to get right with God. Uh, And until that happens, it's going to be business as usual. Same thing, just a different day, you know? But uh, isn't it great to know we have Jesus Christ? We have something beyond just this country thriving? This hand is going to represent you and me, and this represents sin. Put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever, in a literal fire-burning hell. There are people who are going there, folks. That should not sit right with us. We should be sharing this message of eternal life as often as we can. In order to get to heaven, we have to be absolutely perfect with no sin. We all have sin. This separates us from God. There's no amount of turning, starting, stopping, promising that could ever pay for our sin. 
No good works can pay for it. The wages of sin is not good works. It's death. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. On the cross of Calvary, He took that sin upon Himself and He paid for it fully. What a wonderful thing He did. He paid for all of this. He was buried and He rose again three days later. And the simple promise of eternal life is, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's the message that people say is hard to believe. There's a whole group of people out there that would say, that's not enough, you've got to do more. Well, my good works could never add to what he did. He did it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the moment a person believes on the finished work of Jesus Christ, they receive the free gift of everlasting life, and it lasts forever. That's why it's called everlasting life. We have an inheritance that's set away for us in heaven. So we'll be in heaven. When the Lord comes at the rapture, so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's going to reward us for the choices that we make here. That sounds great. <laughs> Sign me up for that. There was somebody here today. Raise their hand and put their trust in Jesus Christ. The raising of a hand didn't save them. But they indicated, you know what, that makes sense. And then they heard the rest of the message. Boy, that got me going. I was, I was like, yes, let's, this is great. And it should get us excited too when somebody comes into our church and any given Sunday, they say that in sports, any given Sunday. Well, literally here, any given Sunday, you're going to hear the gospel, amen? And people get saved. I think that's great. But maybe you're watching on the internet and you'd like to get saved, it's very simple. Just put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The moment that you do, you're saved into eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you are on the internet and you're watching tonight, I want to encourage you to go ahead and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Just simply believe on Him. There's no amount of good works, promises, good intentions that you could commit that would bring about eternal life. You just need to simply believe on Jesus. And if you're here in the audience, the same is true of you. Before we close, I, I do want you to think about what we've studied tonight. It's not our job to think of people in our lives and say, oh, they need this, oh, they need to hear that, although they may be true. But how can you learn from tonight? What biblical examples can we put into practice? I pray that you would consider those things prayerfully and then do them. And know that I am your pastor and for you. And the Lord's coming back soon, folks. Don't worry about anything. Just keep looking. He's coming. Father, thank you for your word. Bring us back here safely on Wednesday night. I thank you for the great music special we had this morning. That was so encouraging. My answer is yes. Think about the kids program in the back, Youth Ranch, ESL. And we ask, Lord, that your will be done in all these areas. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.